Welcome to the Rooted Legacy Podcast. At Laurel Branch Church of God, we are devoted to developing an environment of engagement with Yahweh and hosting His presence attentively. Our hope is to help others become rooted in beloved identity and further the kingdom of God on this earth. From Pastor Seth Klein and the congregation at Laurel Branch Church of God, we hope this message brightens your day and changes your life. We pray that God blesses you and all that you do. Thanks for listening.
Give the Lord a good hand clap this I want to give you a thought before I get started. Kind of a funny thought, but at the same sense, a genuine and sincere thought. Uh, I just wanted to point out that there was several pairs of shorts, flip-flops, and a ball cap on the stage, and not one time was God offended. Hmm? There was tattoos, long hairs, beards, and earrings, and not one time was God offended. We have to understand that what may offend us does not necessarily offend God. And I, I, I want to use that as an illustration, or at least uh, to bring across my point, is that a lot of times we will begin to see things that may not necessarily uh, set well with us because of our preferences and even prejudices and automatically try to say or insinuate that God is offended by those things. I don't think God was offended by the attire of anyone here. You know, we, I made a joke with Wyatt this morning. He said he forgot his shoes. I said, as long as you didn't forget your pants, we're all right. <laughs> so it really don't matter. I mean, I don't care if you come in here barefooted. I really don't. You know, pantless is another thing, but shoeless is okay. Uh, but God's not offended. As a matter of fact, I think God was pleased. I think God was pleased. I think God was pleased with the, the, uh, the sincerity and the uh, energy or the, uh, uh, the, I don't want to say exertion. Sometimes it should be easy. I think what we do for God should be easier than what we've made it. I, I, I think we were taught so early on that, man, you gotta, you you got to exert all of your energy. When I first started preaching, uh, if I got the chance to preach on a Sunday morning, I was, I was hoarse. For two or three days afterwards, I, I would go home and literally uh, lay down and take a nap because I had felt like I had run a marathon and kind of probably did. I mean, as many times as I would walk to left to right and, and, and I heard somebody tell me one time, you know, I preached a funeral and they were like, when we seen you step out from behind that pulpit, we seen the anointing fall, which was the case. Uh, and I mean, there's there's more to that I won't get into, but... I never did like being stuck behind the pulpit. I liked to, to roam. And so, but when I would step out, it was actually it was me stepping out into that anointing, so to speak. But the case was uh, uh, the case the, the case was I did I felt as though I had to to move to look anointed, right? I was doing it maybe from the from the wrong intentions. But, but I was still to not take away from the fact that God would anoint me when I would step away from, you know, the pulpit. Because I, I was at, when you're a young minister, you're afraid you'll mess up. And I was afraid to step away from my notes and my Bible for any amount of time. But God would always show up when I would step away and step into a place of trust with him. But the thing of it was, is I felt as though I was doing it to show my anointing. To walk back and forth and to kick high and you know uh you know there was i would make several trips to the back of the church and to the front of the church and i would 
I would stomp, kick, and hack, and holler just as much as the next guy. And I thought I was anointed, right? We're taught that we have to exert our energy. I, I was at a church, we was at a part of a revival one time, and I spoke several times during the week. This one guy got up, man, oh, son, I tell you, I kid you not. Let me take a sip of this coffee. It's going to be a long story. <laughs> I'm sitting, oh, I, if my hair gets in my way, I'm putting my hat back on just so y'all ain't a, uh, I need the illustration for my forehead too. This guy immediately, like he gets up, he's talking like I am, uh, kind of just calm and collective. But all of a sudden, he steps from calm and collective over to just uh, uh, absolute, just, he amped it and, and revved it up immediately. He went from zero to 60 in 2.3 seconds. And immediately I started to almost fear for my life because his face turned blood red. He was jumping up and down and I'm, I'm talking. I thought he was flexing on me because I was like, well, wait a minute. Big vein. That's the only thing I could look at for the entire time he preached was this big vein that bulged out onto his forehead. And I'm thinking, if the Lord ain't on him, we're going to witness an aneurysm. He, he made it for about 25, 30 minutes. But, you know, that's y'all want to know why I preach for an hour and 45 minutes? Because I am like the turtle. <laughs> I maintain my speed, and I, win, I end up crossing the finish line. I don't run out of gas after 25, 30 minutes. I preach for three days. I think that's how Paul did it. But anyway, I, I, I was like, my goodness, I could never do that. I, and, and so I would always kind of, compare myself to everybody else's anointing or however you wanted to view it. But we're taught early on that we've got to exert our energy. We've got to uh, we've got to almost force the thing to make it look like we're anointed. But I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that what we do for the Lord uh, should be easy at times. It should flow at times. And, uh, and I feel like that's what what was happening here. I don't think that it was necessarily forced. I don't think that it was exerted. I don't think that it was, I don't think it was our energy, so to speak. I believe that it was his energy, so to speak. And so I believe the Lord was pleased here with what we did this morning. I think the Lord's pleased with what we do here uh, mostly every morning. And so I just want to say all that to say thank you for all that you guys do. Uh, whether you play an instrument, sing, whether you stand up, clap your hands, or whether you just tap your foot, all of that is in accordance to, or all of that is, is, is in relationship to us collectively worshiping the Lord for who He is. So I want to say thank you. Amen. And I also want to say that uh, if God is not offended by skinny jeans, He has no, no problem with shorts. <laughs> What's more offensive to me, I'm going to say skinny jeans because, you know, listen. I'm not going to preach on skinny jeans, but brother, when you're 65 years old, those depends are easily noticeable through those skinny jeans. I'm just saying. <laughs> Amen. So let me say something this morning. I've said in times past that I've never preached a sermon, and I don't believe that I have. Oh, I believe that I preached some sermons early on when I thought that I had to do it myself. But somewhere in my maturity, as I started to grow in the Lord, I realized that it was never me preaching anyway if I was preaching what the Lord had already gave me. It's not my study. It's not, it's not that I'm coming here to prove to you that I'm smarter as far as intellectually 
or you know, as 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 it pertains to intellectualism. I'm not here to do that. I'm actually here to just share with you what God has been sharing with me throughout the week. So today might be a little bit different. I'm not going to start a series. I don't even call them series. I just tell you it's a message. I may preach. I may preach it one day. I may preach it for three months. I don't know. I mean, uh, I've preached the prodigal son on and off frequently since 2017. And I don't know that I've ever preached it differently, but it's always been the same. Or I, don't, I won't say that I've preached. I, I have preached it in different ways, I should say that, but it's always been the same message. It's we need to come home to God. We need to dwell within the presence of Abba. But, but this morning may be a little different. I said, God, what, what is it that you would want me to tell them this morning? I didn't have a sermon prepared till this morning. I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> so what would you have me tell them this morning? I don't have 15 pages of notes either. I got something up here and in here, and that's where I'm going to preach from this morning. He said, I want you to tell them that I'm thinking of them. And immediately two scriptures popped into my head. Psalms 8 and Jeremiah 29. Both of them begin to speak about God being thinking, but that God is thinking and that He is thoughtful and that He is mindful of us. God is always eternally thinking of you and I. And I believe that I can prove to you today that you actually exist because you were created within a realm of his thoughts and he released you. Amen. Amen. So if you will, let's go ahead and get into some scriptures. I don't normally do this as fast either, but I'm going to get into some scriptures. I've only ran around my, ran my mouth for about, about 10 minutes. Now we're going to get into some scriptures. We're going to get into the word of God. Amen. And I'm going to preach it from the Bible, the King James Version. Amen. I need your shirt. There's zero days of, of no sarcasm because I just went with it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I heard a funny story from Billy Graham one time. On occasion, they run this Billy Graham marathon on Sirius XM. And I was listening to him one morning and he had, uh, this was like in the, in the 60s, late 60s. He had started getting questioned about the translation of Bible that he was reading from. And he addressed it one time in one of his sermons. He's like, you know, I've been asked what, what translation of the Bible I'm reading from. And uh, his answer was simply, he said, the same one that Paul preached from. Nobody got, I guess. You know, he, he preached primarily from the, uh, I think it was either the, uh, uh, what's the ESV? English Standard Version or the ASV, American Standard Version. I think it was the English Standard Version that he preached from primarily. Uh, and people were kind of okay with his answer, even though his answer was sarcastic. Paul didn't read from the Bible. He helped write two-thirds of the New Testament. So anyway, uh, I'm going to read from the King James Version just because that's where I feel like I, I was led to read from. Uh, let's go to, first of all, let's go to Isaiah, or, uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29 and 11. I'm, I'm going to say that most of us probably know this scripture well, probably can even quote it. Uh, and I'm not even going to try to explain it. I'm not going to go into no theological depths. It's just what it says, what it says, and it means what it means. And uh, Jeremiah 29 and 11. And I'm afraid I might not preach longer than 30 minutes today, and I vowed never to do that. So I'm probably going to ask people. Uh, to come up and help me preach here in a little bit, okay? All right? You ready, White? 
Hmm. Wyatt. No, he ain't been that far. Jeremiah 29 and 11. And I, th- I really think this is probably, uh, if you asked a hundred Christians what their favorite Bible verse was, 90% of them would include this one. Because, I mean, you can't ask a Christian what their favorite Bible verse is. I don't know that you can have one favorite Bible verse. So, you know, maybe we should just say, what's your favorite 20 verses and go from there. But this one will usually be included. And it says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you. This is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. I don't know. I mean, I love the part where he says not of evil uh, to, to prosper you, to uh, to give you uh, uh, an expected end, or to some translations say a future and a hope. I think there is so much hope and there's so much encouragement in the latter part of that scripture. But as of late, especially this morning, <laughs> I think that there should be more of a hope and an encouragement in the first part of that scripture that God is saying, I think of you. If we can simplify the first part of that scripture. Oh, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. God is literally saying, I think about you. How many times do you think about things that you are obsessed with? Brandy's probably sitting back there going, "Mm mm-hmm. Because I, I, I look at, think about, and talk about tractors all the time. Uh, I like tractors. I, I just like them. I don't know why. They're just, they're simple. They do what I want them to do. And, you know, Brandy thinks mine's attractive. They don't talk like No. No. But I'm able to think on those things while I'm actually busy doing other things. Right? If, if you are obsessed with something... You will find the ability within yourself to think on those things while you're busy doing other things. If we are in love with the Lord as much as we say we are in love with the Lord, we will find the ability within us to think upon Jesus while we're busy doing other things. We can maintain a secular job and still be focused on the presence and the being of Jesus Christ in our lives. We can do that. Amen. Who said that? Okay. Thank you. I didn't, it's muffled through all that facial hair you got going on. <laughs> I, and I can remember one of the first, the, not one of, but the first Bible study that I ever led, I led it on being focused on Jesus all the time. And I used scripture uh, to, to, to validate those things. And the thing of it was, is somebody got offended when I started, when I started teaching that, we can still do the things that we need to do in life and that are necessary in life and still be, and I use the word a lot, cognizant or conscious to the presence of God in our lives and in the world. And so somebody, after, I mean, actually, it was almost a, it was almost a fight. It was, it was a, a debate going on instead of listening to what I had to say. I said, uh, you know, are you, do you expect me to believe 
that we can go through life completely focused on Jesus all the time? I said, yes, yes. That was 10, 12 years ago. That was the first Bible lesson that I ever taught. I still haven't learned it completely myself. Amen? God will give you a revelation, but He will always expect you to inquire, research, and pursue the knowledge and the wisdom within that revelation. I know and I believe that I can walk through this life completely and intently focused on the presence and the being of God. Everything else is simply a distraction, intent, and hell-bent on deceiving you and dividing your attention. Do you understand? I love the word division. I don't love the word division, but I love to use the word division and simply breaking it down in two parts. And you've heard me use this several, several, several times. It's actually two words, die and vision. Die actually means two or separate visions. If the enemy can distract you and divide your attention, he's actually got you looking at Jesus in the peripherals. Or even with one eye, you're focused on Jesus, but with the other eye, you're focused on something else, primarily the world. Jesus said if your eye is single, which means that both of them are focused on the same thing, then your whole body will be filled or full of light. The, the most detrimental thing inside of the church and taking place today is that we are divided in our focus. Prove it. Look at the way we now do church. Okay? Let's, let's, go, back, let's go back 200 years ago. In, the, in, in 1799 to about 1800, 1801, when there was a great outpouring, there was a great revival in rural America when at that time, Kentucky was considered the Wild West. <laughs> That's not very far west. Yeah, there was nobody but the indigenous people living in your home state of Washington. I can assure you that. Kentucky was considered the Wild West. Kentucky was considered a, 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 a place of lawlessness. As a matter of fact, most of the population in Kentucky at the time was absolute ruthless outlaws that were on the run from the law. They, they called them, uh, they called them, uh, they called Kentucky, especially Logan County in Kentucky, Satan's stronghold. Satan's stronghold. Uh, there was another word for it. Uh, uh, can't remember exactly what it was, but it was, uh, I don't know, something like Heathen's Harbor or something like that. Uh, but here's the, the great contrast. If you research some of these revivals that they had in the middle of nowhere, no convenience. No luxuries, very few amenities. And the Red River Revival, or the Cane Ridge Revival rather, they said that there was upwards to twenty-five to 30,000 people that traveled from all over the country. They didn't even make it inside of a one-room cabin long, log building, but said that there was people encamped around that, that, that church, that little log cabin, within a two-mile radius. 
And not only did they, but they brought everything that they needed. They brought their covered wagons. They brought their milk cow. They brought their chickens. They brought everything that they needed to sustain life while on the journey. But do you know what they were doing? They were looking for something and they were looking for someone and they were looking for Jesus. And the Holy Spirit showed up and showed out with manifestations that no one had ever seen before. They said that they would have to designate people to go out into the woods and actually ribbon it off and keep an eye on hundreds of people at the same time that were slain in the Spirit. Thousands of people, thousands of people not witnessing but feeling the manifestation of God. Do you know what was so different about that so-called? What was so different about that revival than the ones that we have today? Is they didn't name it anything first and foremost. They didn't have they didn't have anything uh, anything drawn up. They wasn't advertising it on social media. They didn't tell everybody that if you don't get here, you're going to miss out on what God has for you. They didn't tell you that you need to be here at such and such time because evangelist so-and-so is going to be here. They didn't do any of that. They didn't schedule uh, predominant speakers of the day. They didn't sign anybody that had a mega church and a book deal. None of them had either any of those things. What they all had in common was a hunger and a desire for the Spirit of God, the presence of God, and for a moral revival to change everything about not only their life, but the landscape. The regions were revived. It went from, it went from a place called uh, Satan's stronghold to actually they started calling it the, the soul's harbor because people were finding God where most people at one time was running from God, or at least running from the law. What's the difference in today? Let me tell you about the fall of this little church. A church that one time hosted tens of thousands of people that came from all over the country, that literally brought their families and their homes with them to camp out in the woods. How many of you have visited a revival that you had to camp out to go visit? I did once. I couldn't. I really didn't afford a room. But anyway, slept in a hammock. It was pretty cool. Now, now when they host the revival, they have a link at the bottom for hotel accommodations, and you can even get a discounted price if you mention that revival to the hotel. See, it's all about numbers. But when the Cane Ridge Revival happened, it was all about one. It was all about a presence. It was all about the power of the mighty God that, that is in heaven. It was about thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what the difference was? It was they were mindful of the one that was mindful of them rather than being mindful of their own opinions and their own interests. I told you about the dream that I've had. I've taught about it twice or taught on it twice. And I told you about the small pockets of people that were gathered in, in, in groups all around this sanctuary. A fairly large sanctuary. But there was, there was pockets and there was groups of people, little cliques of people all around the, the sanctuary. And everyone was on the outside perimeter of the sanctuary or they were against the outside perimeter walls. But they were facing 
one another, which meant that they were all focused on what was in front of them and they had their backs towards the center of the sanctuary, which should have been where all their focus was, which that's where Jesus should be centered. That's where Jesus should be seated. But the Lord began to speak to me concerning those things that says this is what's wrong, part of what's wrong with the modern day church. They're too focused on special and personal interests rather than being focused on Christ that should be high and lifted up in the central, high and lifted up and central within the middle of the church. Jesus is supposed to be the center of my attention. He's supposed to be the center of my focus. So if my vision is divided or it's split, He's not the center of my focus. Because look, they put blinders on horses so that the horse would look straight ahead. Everybody's been preaching, we got spiritual blinders on, brother. We got spiritual blinders on. No, brother, you got spiritual blinders. You got a spiritual blinder. You don't have two that keeps you from looking at everything in your peripherals. You got one straight down the middle, line line with your nose, and it keeps you from focusing on anything, especially Jesus Christ, because you're so caught up with everything that's in your peripherals. Amen? Do you want me to tell you why we had to start preaching and teaching on revival and how all of these, these uh, <clears throat> people have studied those revivals and tried to formulate what they did at Red River and Cane Ridge? Formulate. To come up with a formula to comprise all of these ingredients and put them together to try to come up with some desired flavor. They tried to formulate. Listen, there is no formula to revival. There's no formula. You can't put all of these ingredients together and come up with a concoction and call it revival. It's Kool-Aid, but it ain't revival. It might be sweet, but it ain't revival. The only ingredient to revival is being focused on Christ and making Him the center of your pursuit. God is... Let me stop right there and say, well, brother, you started out with saying God is mindful of us, but now you're telling me I should be mindful of Him. Absolutely. Exactly. Because it actually makes it seem it changes my perspective to understand that oh the god of the universe who has a do list much larger than mine and i struggle with making sure that i give my adequate attention to everybody that needs my adequate attention but god does not struggle with those same limits that i do god can still make the earth revolve around the sun 365 days a year and spin on its axis one time within every 24 hours and still find time within all of eternity to come and hold me when I need Him. God is that mindful of me. It actually, it, I could sum it up with, oh, I love Him because He first loved me. God was so mindful of me that even before He created me, He made a way out that I could escape the nature of my sinfulness and I could escape the wrath of hell. 
Way before you were. Listen, Jeremiah 1.5 says that He knew you before He formed you and before you came out of your mother's womb. He made you a prophet. He made, he, he, he made you a prophet under the nations. But He knew you. Intimately. Not that He was associated or acquainted with you. The word there is a Jewish idiom for when a man goes in and knows his wife. Intimate. Even con- e- there's consensual and I'm making up words, maybe not, I don't know, conceptual. It's a word today because the preacher said so. But it's consensual. But it, it, it's, it's intimate. I, I've always said, Jeremiah 1 and 5, if I could show you what it meant, it was God holding you in the palm of His hand. I'm going to go a little bit further. Where, where were you before you, He held you in the palm of His hand? You understand that when you hold something in your hand, it could be that you're getting ready to release it, right? Hmm? Jason catches fish. He holds it up, takes a picture of it. You know what he's going to do? He's going to release it. But do you know he had? He knew that fish before he released it. He held it in his hand before he released it. Hmm? Charlie pitches baseball. Do you know what he does with the ball in his hand? He releases it. Right? So I believe that Jeremiah 1 5 was God. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a depiction of God holding you in the palm of his hand. Because he's, 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 he's supplying your needs, but he's getting ready to release you on a journey. But yet, before the journey, he's, he's, he's supplying you with all that you'll need. He's provided. Amen? I always believe that John, Jeremiah 1 of 5 was actually him saying, I held you with the ball of my hand. I told you all that you needed to hear. I even gave you insight to your story. I believe that that's sometimes why you will, you, you know, everybody know what deja vu is? You ever been in a situation where you're like, I've seen this before. I've been here before. I've heard him say that before. You know why? Because you did. Because you were. Why? Because see, he's already told you the entire storyline of your story. He's already told it to you, and now he's narrating it again. So sometimes you will begin to see into a situation that you feel as though you've already encountered and entered into, but not in this life. Before you were released into this life, I think. Now, does that make sense or does that just throw everybody completely off? Okay, but, do you, but my question was, where were you before you were in the palm of his hand? In his thoughts. Does everybody know what the word imagination means? <clears throat> I don't know that this is a word. I actually researched it. Innate. I-N-N-A-T-E. Okay? So I'm going to break the word imagination down into two words. Do you understand what? That the, the, the first word in imagination is actually image. Right? Innate literally means to bring to life. No, wait here. That's animate. Let me give you the definition. I lied. I do have some notes. Right. Okay. Thank you. I, I'm glad. I, I'm glad I took note of this one. 
Innate means existing in, belonging to, or determined by factors present in an individual from birth. Native, inborn, uh, innate behavior, belonging to the essential nature of something inherent. Or originating in or derived from the mind or the constitution of the intellect rather than from experience. Okay, or uh, something I want to kind of address here is then that third definition, originating in or deriving from the mind. You originated in the thoughts. And I didn't say mind on purpose. You derived from the thoughts of God. Okay? Because a lot of times we will automatically assume that I'm thinking and relate it to the mind. But I believe that God created you within the realm of his heart. Right? So you were actually created within the realm of God's heart. And then he had an image of you. Here's something different. Here's something I want to have. If you have an imagination. Most of us had an imaginary friend, right? We spoke to this imaginary fan. We played with this imaginary fan. We may have set a plate at the table for this imaginary friend. But there was something that we were never able to do. We were never able to... Uh, release and to see the generation or the origination of our imagination, right? God is different. If God has a thought, he has the ability for him because of who he is to release it into existence. Okay? You, we're, you and I have an imagination because it originated from God first, Right? Well, brother, you know the Bible is so simple that even a child can believe it. I agree with that in part. But I'm going to tell you something right now that the Bible and what it tells us, uh, what it tells us about uh, past, present, and future, what it tells us about God, what it tells us about the things that Moses did, it tells us about Jonah being swallowed by a large fish, it tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he died on a cross, resurrected after the third day, ascended into the heavens. It talks about Peter walking on water. It talks about blind men receiving their sight. It talks about uh, demons being, be, being, being released or people being released from demonic uh, attachments and so on and so forth. Listen, I think that you have to be, you have to have such a wild and vivid imagination of a child to actually and to honestly believe what the Bible says. Because it is so complex that when we begin to mature and become smarter, so we think, we then begin to discredit and try to disprove the Bible or try to, uh, try to detour around it to explain it so that it makes better sense. Listen, it was never meant for it. It was never meant to make sense to you. It was meant for you to believe. It was meant for you to hope into. It was meant for you to take God at His word. I've always said this. There's a difference in, quest there's a difference in asking questions and questioning. When I start to ask questions, I'm curious. When I begin to question, I'm skeptical. I'm cynical. I'm doubtful. I'm interrogating. To find evidence. It's okay to ask God questions. It's a whole different thing entirely. To start, to start questioning God. 
Do I need help? Absolutely. I believe, but God help me with my unbelief. Right? I need help in believing what the Word of the Lord says. Why? Because in my 37 years on this earth, I've begun to mature, but it's not necessarily maturity. It's actually doubt when we're talking about God. In 37 years, I've started to move away from... When I was five and six years old, there was not a doubt in my mind. I'm t- I believe that there are people that serve God. or Let me say it this way. I believe there's people that attend church for 30 years that are not having the same conversations with God that they did when they were children. Reed will get hurt and he will ask you to pray. Why? Not because he believes in Daddy. Because he believes in Jesus. Because his mind is still yet so innocent, it has not been corrupted by what we call maturity. It's not maturity. It's a disaster. Sometimes knowledge is not power, at least not power for your benefit. It's power for the enemy's benefit. Do you know what knowledge will do sometimes? Listen, let me ask you this. And this is just a scenario. Probably the dumbest thing that I've ever asked to try to explain something in my life. If you had no concept of gravity, would you be fearful of heights? If you had no concept for for every action, there is an equal or greater reaction, would you be scared to do a 100 mile an hour around Beverly's curve? Hmm? Right? If you had no concept that a grizzly bear could crush your skull and swallow you whole almost practically, would you have any fear of wild grizzly bears? You know, all right, I, we were at the beach, just to give another illustration, and I heard a, a gentleman talking at the pool. And he was talking about out on the pier, they have to gut their fish and clean them right there on the pier, and they throw all that stuff off the pier. He said we were out there, and he said we were watching three- and four-foot sharks come up and grab the fish heads as they threw them in the water, just literally waiting there beside the pier for all of that blood and all those guts and all of those uh, um, discarded parts such of the fish, such, I guess, fins, tails, and heads, to come up and get it. And you know what he said? He said, I used to go swimming in the ocean at night, but I know too much now. <laughs> had he had no concept that there existed sharks of that size in the water, would he have still been fearful to go out and swim? Absolutely not. He said so. I used to, but now I know too much. Sometimes wisdom is, sometimes knowledge, let me say it, sometimes knowledge is not always our friend. Sometimes it's our enemy. And do you know what's even more dangerous? Manipulated and twisted knowledge. Or knowledge in part. Just pieces of, of it. Okay? I can tell you something. I can tell you something and only give you pieces or give you the knowledge in part and make it mean something entirely different than what it actually does. Right? Amen? Hmm? I won't say that. Lord, have mercy. Jesus, help me. <laughs> it may leak a little bit. <laughs> There's a big difference when something leaks and something pours, right? That was, an, that was innocent. I don't blame you. You know that. Brian knows that. He was there. But I can manipulate knowledge, right? 
And here, here's the thing. What, brother, you're going on a rapture. Maybe so. But here's the thing. John of the Cross, or St. John of the Cross said this. He said, God, the love of God cannot be explained. It can only be experienced. When I needed an explanation is when I started to be confused and doubt. When I thought that I was being an apologist or I was studying apologetics because I needed to have an answer when I debated people, uh, there's two things I don't feel that I have to do anymore, have an answer or debate. I know the Bible says have an answer. I got one. Jesus. I got one because I believe. I've got one. But I've seen evidence that you might not necessarily be able to see but I've seen it. I've seen a little girl healed. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen people uh, delivered of, of, of arthritis. I've seen people delivered of wrong, torn rotator cups. I've seen, uh, I mean, I, I've seen the miraculous of God. You know what I can't do for any of it? I can't give you an explanation. Reagan was healed of stage Four, was it stage four? Stage four, Rick kidney reflux in both kidneys. Not only was it rare to have in both kidneys, stage four was even rarer, and it was never, it's never been healed on its own apart from surgery. We prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. We take her to, to, to the hospital. They take her in the back. They have to inject dye through her urethra tube into her kidneys. And it had already been done two times. One gentleman that saw it came out and told us, before the doctor ever came out and told us, he said, it's bad. Because he was in there in the room the first time that they'd done the test. When they injected the injected dye, they look at it on a sonogram and the, the kidneys will turn purple. And he said her kidneys turn purple immediately. Okay? So we knew it was bad. They've done it a second time. I guess it was a confirmation or verification. And then they do it this time. This is somewhere around close to a year later. Uh, she had been on antibiotics for every day of her life for a year to keep her from getting severe UTIs. Uh, as you know, they can be very dangerous. We're sitting in the, uh, the room waiting for the doctor to come in, and she says, and listen, I was, a, I was an immature Christian right now. If I could have had the chance to do it over again, I'm, I'm going to stand up and preach. But she comes in the room, and she says, and I'm not going yeah, to. Yeah. She said, we know, we, know not, we know not what happened. She said, only thing we know, that it wrongly diagnosed. They had no more kidney reflux. What she said was, we can't find anything wrong with her. So all we can figure out is somebody back there uh, wrongly diagnosed her. She's been fine all along. No, honey, let me tell you something. She was rightly diagnosed, but there's power in the prayer, and there's power in God, and there's power in faith, and God healed her of something that you said couldn't be healed. And you bitter because you ain't going to get $20,000 from me to do a surgery. That's what you're mad about. 
Oh, there's no, the only thing. See, what, what happened was that she couldn't explain it. So do you know what happens when you can't explain something? You then try to explain it away. Hmm? You then try to explain it away. And listen, here's the problem. Is I know that the world is trying to explain a God away. But what, what, what gives when the church is now trying to start to explain God away? What do you have? You have such a great division because you have denominations springing up everywhere. You have different denominations. You have different organizations. You have different doctrines. You have different theologies. Everybody trying to explain why they're more enlightened than the next bunch down the road and why they had to leave this church and form their own church. And you know what? In all of that bullcrap, nobody's really pointing to Jesus. Well, you know, God could use the, high, the, the moon and the high tides and all of this, and this is the way that He could actually make everything come together and pull the, the waters back and Israelites could walk across. No, no, it's parted because the words came out of God's mouth that began to manifest what was already in God's heart. You came to existence. I understand that there was conception and that there are things that take place in a mother's womb and stuff that we can't explain. But I'm telling you, you exist today because God had His had you in His heart and then He began to deliver you and release you into existence. You exist today because God said you existed. Amen? Well, I don't know why I'm even alive. Well, it's because you're trying to find you're trying to find all of your importance in a world that had nothing to do with your existence. Brother, if I just had a million dollars, two million dollars, I don't even want to live anymore. I just why? Because you have not found your purpose in that He sent you. Listen, I don't even. I'm butchering it. I know, but why do I exist? You know what? Let me let me let me let me let me help you. Let me help you. This might help you more than anything else I can say. Stop trying to find purpose in why you're alive and understand that you're living because He finds pleasure in you. Amen. Brother, I've got to find my purpose. No, shut up and understand that He created you because there's pleasure in you. He created you different because what if He created everything as awesome as white? It would be boring. Hmm? If everybody had the immaculate tan and this rhyme back there, you know, I think you, I almost called you Eddie Guerrero. <laughs> Just, I was waiting for him to jump off the stage like a top rope. I'm not even, a, I, I'm not much of a wrestling fan. I know there's people in here that are. But it would be boring. <laughs> but God finds great pleasure in you because He's mindful of you, He's thoughtful of you. Do you, do you. Let me help you out here. 
You existed in the heart of God before you existed in the hand of God, before He released you and you existed within the world. Do you know, where, do you, do you know that everything comes full circle? That you're actually to come back to the heart of God. Amen? You're to come back to the heart of God. But I, I, let me help you out with something here. I don't think that there's actually a timeline. There's not a clock ticking as when you're supposed to make it. Because, you know, you type in the coordinates to where you're wanting to go and it will give you a travel time and a, an arrival time, right? This is how long it will take you. And if you stay on this road and you stay this speed, you do all of this, there's no, there's no delays. You'll get there at 5.01 p.m., right? Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't work that way for when you come back into the heart of God because you can come back into the heart of God and you can make the full trip within the, 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 the realm of the heart of God. Because the heart of God is actually a realm or a dimension. Does that make sense? Prove David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man who was mindful of God that understood that God was mindful of him. Do you want me to tell you the reasoning behind every time David sinned? Because he allowed something else to consume his heart. You want me to tell you every time that he walked back into grace when he began to seek after the heart of God. Do you want me to tell you one of the greatest revelations that David ever had? It was when he was a youngster, when he was a very young adolescent, when he was around the age of 13, most say. Do you know what the greatest revelation he had? That he was beloved. Because, see, he was in the field tending a few sheep. He was in the place of obscurity where nobody had their eye on him, but it didn't matter. Because he wasn't, he didn't, he, he, he wasn't there worried about what is my purpose in life. Do you understand that at 13 he had no idea and there was no care in the world that he was going to be king one day? He was perfectly content in the field in obscurity, tending a few sheep, playing his heart to be a pleasure to God. That's where he found his identity. Listen, I don't, I don't care. I understand he was King David, but he was a man after God's own heart. Everything else was a byproduct, if you will, of him understanding that he was a pleasure to God and the most pleasing thing to him was to be pleasurable to God. I know this may come as a shock. I'm not perfect. <laughs> perfect hair? Yes. <laughs> huh? No, I'm not perfect. I know that probably some of y'all were destroyed. I see distraught all over your face. <laughs> Kind of came as a shock to me too. <laughs> I'm not perfect, but I'm pleasurable. Right, baby? 
At 13, he had he had no idea, no care of what his purpose in life was. At 13, he was content. I think that he was overjoyed by sitting on a log. I don't know if he sat on a log, but by sitting on a log, watching over a few sheep, strumming his harp, and singing songs to God. Do you understand that he wasn't singing, hoping that somebody would hear him and give his uh, demo tape to a record label and that he may get a record deal? David wasn't worried about a record deal. Do you know how many songs David wrote and none of them were heard on the radio? David never cut an album. But you know how many songs he wrote? Many. Tons. But every time he slipped into sin, it was because he slipped out of a dimension called the heart of God. Do you want me to tell you what will cause you more peace in your life than anything else? For you to begin to pursue a dimension called the heart of God. Because within the heart of God, you will discover that he has always been mindful of you. You listen, you, you, in that dimension, do you understand that he will begin to share his thoughts with you? I love it when people say, well, God is, God is in God's transcendence. This was in a Sunday school curriculum this morning. It said, in God's transcendence, uh, his, his ways and His thoughts are far above ours. And we will, never, we will never be able to conceive or comprehend His thoughts. I'm paraphrasing what I said. You want me to tell you why that's a lie? Because God is looking for men and women that will pursue the realm of the heart of God. Because it's in the heart of God that He wants to share His heart with you. He will start to tell you his most intimate, sacred secrets. Huh? I tell Brandon things that I would not tell anybody else. She tells me things that nobody else would tell me like I look stupid. <laughs> I kid. Y'all know I'm kidding, right? <laughs> I mean, usually if she says that, I deserve it. But you understand what? When we begin to pursue the realm of the heart of God. And let me ask you something. You know the scripture that says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he? Huh? I'm, I'm probably going to destroy that scripture for you right now. Well, brother, you need to think that you're going to be a doctor one day. You're going to be a doctor one day. No, 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 that for you. I'm going to be famous one day because I'm going to believe in my heart. And what is it I believe in my heart? It's going to manifest and come true. Let me mess that up for you. What if I began to think upon God within the realm of my heart and it manifested a realm of me being within His heart? Amen. What if me thinking in my heart so I become... What if I begin to ponder on God within my heart? What if I become obsessed with God in my heart? And then I will realize that in my obsession, there is a realm of me in intimate fellowship with Him. David Thompson, again, one time I haven't referenced him in a while, I don't believe, but he said one time, he said, God, can, how many times have you heard this? God, God, be your priority, brother. You've got to get your priorities straight. You gotta get. You gotta get. You, the Bible reading's gotta be on that priority list. Prayer's gotta be on that priority list. Devotion and a cup of coffee's gotta be on that priority list. Get you a Bible believing church with a guy that's got a pedigree and a, 
and all of this about this long, you know, that's a must. You got to get your priorities straight. Uh, here's what David said. He said, uh, obsessions will always trump priorities. And this is the way I explain that several times. I've explained it this way. Uh, my truck may, may need to need, it may need brakes. That's a priority. Wouldn't you agree? My truck may need brakes, but you know what? I'm going to convince myself that it'll make another week because I haven't got to go bow hunting yet. I'm going to go bow hunting on Saturday morning rather than change the brakes on my truck. So you see how obsession will trump over priorities. Can I maybe hurt your feelings, but I'm doing it to help you? Church should never be our priority over Christ being your obsession. I hate when people say, how do I get saved? I was reading a post on Facebook the other day. Oh, God, I was happy on Jesus. A guy, I think, genuinely and sincerely was asking people on this thread how he could be saved. And the, the answers was absolutely horrific, at least in my opinion. Well, brother, you need to believe in your heart and repeat the prayer and find you a good Bible believer church because you need, you need the support of a good pastor that's going to help lead you. Not, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm down with you finding a good Bible believing church. I'm down with you finding a place where you fit in. By the way, one time I said here that we were going to start to see uh, misfits come in and people that look like they got in a wrestling match with a tackle box and a fight with a sharpie pin, right? I'm, I welcome you guys. <laughs> no, I, I love these people. I really do. I hope, right? You get my joke, right? Thank you. I'm not calling y'all misfits, but if you want to do you think that's pretty cool. I think we're all misfits. I think we all might be outcasts in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. But again, Jesus is offended by none of us. He's not offended by anything that well, I'm gonna say that he's not offended. But he's not offended in the same way that the world is offended. He's certainly not offended in the same way that the church is offended. So I'm down with finding a church that will accept you and love you and teach you and be there for you and guide you and disciple you. But I'm telling you right now, those things will not get you into heaven and it will not develop a relationship with Jesus. It only develops a relationship and a dependency upon the man and the organization. Find you a church by all means. Find you a Bible study. Find you a devotion. By all means do. But that is not the pinnacle of your Christian walk. And that is not the source of your revelation. And it's certainly not the source of your relationship. The source of your relationship is pursuing the heart of God. And allowing the knowledge of what the heart of God ponders to change your heart. Why? Because a man after God's own heart will begin to ponder the things of that heart. Mindfulness. Being mindful and not that it may press 30 minute mark if so. I, I'm, I feel a little bit bad. Three times? You're kidding. Is it 1230? In Jesus' name. But you don't love it. But you understand what I'm saying? God's not mad at you. Hmm? It was. 
I mean, I know two box a lot of I'm not mad. Would you think of that? You're kidding. No, nothing but love for you. I know two box says, but God really meant it. Right? He's not mad. He's got nothing but love for you. He thinks about you. Can I help you? When I said that you were the first imagination of God's heart, can I help you out and tell you that not only were you an imagination, but he imagined you because he has fantasies with you. Oh, I'm a brother. No, 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 no. What do you do when you daydream? What are the things that you may daydream about? You know, keep them to yourself. But what are the things that you may daydream about? You're fantasizing about something. Hmm? Maybe you're thinking about sitting on a, a beach somewhere, watching the sun come up or the sun go down with no care in the world. Maybe you're thinking about standing on top of the mountain and gazing into the horizon. Maybe you're thinking about somewhere on the river or the lake or somewhere, somewhere that you would like to be, that you might find a peace there, that you might find a joy there. Those are things that we daydream about. What if we understood that sometimes, we're not, I, I don't want to say sometimes, but all the time, God is daydreaming about you. Why? Because he finds pleasure and he is pleased in my fellowship and my communion. Come on, man. Listen, we've said it a hundred times here before that we're supposed to be on a journey back to the garden. Because, let, let, come on, let me tell you something. God come down in the cool of the day to walk with Adam. Why? It wasn't because he come down to teach him doctrine and to teach him the law and to teach him the thou shalt not and to teach him the moral code. He knew all of those things. God come down to walk with Adam because he enjoyed his presence. He enjoyed his company. And the same God that came down into the cool of the day and walked with Adam is the same God that desires so badly for you to make time in your day. Did that say you were better with me? I know what it's like to be so busy that I become mindless of God. Do you know how many times I have to repent? Every day. Multiple times a day. Do you know what I feel my greatest offense is? Not necessarily sin, but my greatest offense is being absolutely mindless and unaware of God. I have to ask God, Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me for being so unaware of your presence. Uh, forgive me for being so lacking in my conscience towards you. How many times have you had to make that prayer to you? I'm mindful of you. I'm thinking of you. How many times do you how often have you pondered on the thought that God is thinking of you? How often have we pondered on the thought that right now, 
God is thinking of me. That he's daydreaming and he is fantasizing of fellowship with me. I don't know if, if, if people have a tendency to prefer the hellfire and brimstone preaching, and you won't find that here. The, in, the, the, the worst thing that I'll preach against is the goofiness of the modern day church. If we took God as serious as God took us, we would not have to deal with the things that we're dealing with in the flesh of the world. If we understood that God was as real, if we understood that He was as close as the skin on my bones, and He was as close as the song on my tongue, the song that Brian sings, if we understood that God was and is our reality, be mindful of Him because He is mindful of us. Loving Him because He first and continually loves us. You can be too tired. You can be too overwhelmed. And then you can use those as an excuse. If you want to. But they're not an excuse. To not be obsessed. And to be aware of the presence of God. I've been teaching on. I mentioned Eugene Patterson. Several, several, Peterson, excuse me, several times about practicing the presence in Brother Lawrence. I've, I've said, I've said a hundred times that, that one of the Wesley brothers uh, began to, he, he said one time that my most impactful prayers are when men are completely unaware that I'm praying. Listen, you don't have to put on a religious show to be in the presence of God. You don't have to go into a prayer closet to be in a secret place with God. You have to understand that it's a reality. And in that it's a reality, it's the presence and it's the realm of the heart of God. That is the secret place. Why? I've said it. Because it's there that He reveals all His most intimate secrets. If you ever, ever hear a revelation from someone that is speaking a deeper word than anyone else is because they begin, they, they endeavor deeper into the heart of God. Because the deeper you go into the heart of God, the closer you get to His thoughts. The closer you get into His imagination. The more that you begin to see. Let me help you out here and I'm going to close with this. The closer you endeavor into the heart of God, the more clearer the image of God becomes and the greater you discover that you were created in that image. Hmm? Let me help you. The word image, and this is from the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary definition of, of image. One is an ideal or concept. A popular conception as of a person, institution, or nation projected especially through uh, 
I don't want to read that when it says mass media promoting a corporate image of brotherly love and concern. But I do like the part of a concept as of a person, institution, or nation projected. Uh, I like this one. Exact likeness. A semblance. Not resemblance. A semblance. Do you know what the, the sentence is for that definition? God created man in his own image. Genesis 1 and 27. That's in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of the word image. Exact likeness, semblance. God created man in his own image. When you become a man after God's own heart, you will begin to step in the revelation of God's own image. When you step into the revelation of God's own image, you realize that you are that image. Am I helping anybody this morning? I'm telling you, I'm helping myself. I know that's, that's typical of what I have to say, but I'm telling you, I, I'm, I, I love Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings. I love it because I get to talk about what me and God's talked about. Listen, but God always has a little bit more He can reveal to you. Always a little bit more. A tangible or visible representation or incarnation. We are the image of the incarnate being of God. The closer I get to the heart of God, the more He reveals His image, the more I understand that His image is revealed in me. And he, that reality. Mindfulness. Let me, can, let me give you some scriptures before we go. Jeremiah 29 11, we read it. Go to um, Psalms chapter 8. Psalms chapter 8, verse 4. Yeah, Psalms chapter 8, verse 4, uh, at least to verse 8, possibly verse 9 being the last verse. Verse 4 says, everybody there? Verse 4 says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. Verse 5. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the pass of the sea. And the Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Why is it that you are so mindful of me? What is it about me that you would come down and visit me? Psalms 8 is a depiction of the reality of Genesis, of Adam and God together in the garden. Let me, let me, do you understand that, that first and foremost, I know what the Bible says, that he created Adam in his image and in his likeness, and that he gave him dominion 
over the earth. And a lot of people will preach that you were created and the purpose that you're alive is to have dominion over the earth. I, I, let me tell you something. Let's not get it twisted and I can prove it. It may not be agreeable for most people. But, but Adam only had dominion over the earth when he was fully aware of the image in which he walked. And he was only aware of the image in which he walked. As, as that he walked is when he walked with the image. Here's what happened to Adam when Adam began to try to conjure up or to begin to develop or to begin to project an image of himself that God did not create or ordain. Anybody need me to explain that? Because he began to move away from the promise of God and the Word of God. Okay? He knew who he was. Here's, here's my fear, and I'll say fear. When Eve comes up to him with the fruit and says, Oh, this random snaky looking fella. First of all, Adam should have understood that that wasn't supposed to be in the garden because he was already given dominion over the garden and told to name everything that was already created. He should have known. He should have had enough of the discernment of God to understand this guy meant trouble. But you know what? He was blinded by his own ego. We're going to get on the word ego again. Because see, he was supposed to, he was the one that received from a personal conversation the word of God and the revelation of the way things were supposed to be and how things were supposed to be in reality. He was the one that understood that I was created in the image and the likeness of God and therefore I am to walk in that revelation revealing that image to the world. Here's where, I, here's where I believe that he messed up. Here's why I believe that he began to walk out of communion because he started to walk in arrogance and he began to be led by his own ego and not the soul of God because God breathed in him and he became a living soul. Amen? Eve should have known better. Yes. But even had Eve messed up the way that she messed up, it still should have not ended the way it did with Adam. Had Adam been focused on God and obsessed with God, but he became obsessed with himself. And here's what happened. He got upset because he said, oh, well, this guy says if I eat of this fruit, then I'll be just like God. The problem was she didn't understand or she had not received fully the revelation that she was already like God. We've been dealing with the misconception of a false identity since the garden. And we're still preaching from behind the pulpits of the Americanized church a misidentity and, we, we, and a false identity and a misconception of the image of God. We're preaching from ego. We're preaching from selfishness. We're preaching the message of Adam and not the message of Christ. Adam, Adam should have Adam was responsible for bringing the revelation and the reality of oneness and the, and the image of God within him and her. She was not below or inferior to Adam, but they together were the collective image of the Christ and of God. The reason that Eve was out, let me help you out here. 
Do you know why he used what he used against her? Because she was confused about what her purpose was. Because the man failed to appropriately convey or relay the purpose of the woman. Hmm? And we could go into a lot of things here. But she was out here searching for something that she should have been able to find both in the identity of her husband and the identity of her creator because those identities were not separate from one another. See, there's division. And being mindful of God will also manifest in being mindful of your bride. Trust me, read Ephesians chapter 5. But what was taking place was Eve was out here looking for her identity because she had been she she had been neglected. You know, you know the enemy can begin to patternize your lifestyle. It can't read your thoughts, right? But the enemy knew well enough, and again, I'm theorizing, you can say it's biblical, you can say it's hogwash, I don't care, I'm theorizing. The enemy could tell, he well knew that Eve was searching for something. And then he came into the midst of her search and manipulated her and gave her a false answer of how she could find her identity. If you will do this, even though God said you shouldn't, but that's not what God meant. You will be just like him. That was the issue. I don't know, man. We'll get ready to leave. I promise you. We're going to go here just a minute. But I'm going to drop a bomb. Maybe. Probably not. I'm going to drop a revelation on you. This is why Adam failed. Because he had done removed himself from the heart of God, which was the realm and the reality of the presence of God. He was trying to find his identity in anything and everything else within the world rather than the one that, 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 that created him. There he found his existence. Uh, listen, here's, here's the problem. When he comes up and says, look, I ate of this, and he says, I'll be just like God, Adam began to worry, and he began to be, uh, he, he was then a little bit uh, frustrated, but he was going to make sure that Eve didn't have nothing up on him. Because if that could make him more like God, then he was going to partake of what she said and what he said. You know, it was he said, she said kind of thing. But he was going to make sure. Guess what he did? He forgot what God had told him and he failed to, he failed to consult God in what was being said to him. So all he was worried about was making sure that he had all that he needed to make sure all he was worried about was his self-image. Does that make sense? All he was worried about was feeding his ego. It had nothing to do with feeding his soul. That's where he failed. That's how we see the demise of man. Because man was not where man was created to be. Let me say this again. Man in that moment was not where... Man was not where man was created. Well, I know the little ones are getting messed. Oh, yeah, I, I know. Man was not where man was created to be. Why? Because man was in his own heart rather than being in the heart of God. How many know this? The quote that C.S. Lewis said that I repeat all the time. 
that there's two crumbs in the heart of every man. If you're on yours, you cannot be on his. Adam started to seek his own idea and search the thing, pursue the things of his own heart. Absent from the heart of God. That's when he messed up. That's when he fell from grace. Had Eve not been so busy trying to find her purpose, she would understand and stood that she was created for pleasure and for the pleasing of God. So I say this to all of you in closing. It's not so much about finding your purpose in life. It's about understanding that you were created for the pleasure and the pleasing of God. Do you understand that God doesn't need you to hit a home run? He doesn't need you to do things exceptionally well. He doesn't need you to be a straight-A student. I mean, your parents need you to get some good grades. Don't hear, don't, don't hear something I'm saying, though, no. He don't need you to be successful, okay? Don't be a bum. That's not what I'm saying. God doesn't need all of those things for him to find pleasure and to be pleased with you. God created you because in you, he finds pleasure in you. He finds what pleases him. Be content and secure in knowing that God loves you and he's mindful of you. And you are actually a manifestation of his thoughts. And that his thoughts continue to manifest goodness in your life. Prove it. I know my thoughts that I think towards you. To prosper you and all of you. To give you an expected end. Do you know what that really means? He has thoughts and great expectations for you. And expected end. His expectations for you are high. But what is his expectations? A visitation. An inhabitation. That is his greatest expectation of you. Amen? Amen. Amen. How bad did I put you here? So bad nobody wants to talk about. <laughs> I understand. Before we go, is there any announcements that need to be made? Brandy, you got any announcements? Will you stand up and give us an announcement, baby girl, please? Come on. Did we, did we decide on the 20, was it the 29th? Yeah, the 29th. Uh, 28th and the 29th, maybe. But we'll try one of those days. If it does pretty good, we'll make it both of those days. Yeah. And if nobody knows what we're talking about, uh, August 28th and 29th, uh, I think that's the last weekend in August, right? Uh, we're going to have an outdoor scene on the hill adjacent to Cinnamon's and Sharon's and Paul and Sharon's. Uh, an outdoor scene. And it's not just, I mean, uh, of course you guys are singing and I think Jason and White and, and maybe 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 some of his family are singing. And heck far, if Deidre and Linda want to get up singing something, they, I mean, they're more than welcome. Frank, Frank, Frank's a better singer than what he puts out and lets on that he is. I'm not much of a singer. But that'll be the last weekend in August, okay? Uh, is Sandra back here? Can she come in here? Will you, will you ask Sandra to come in here, please?
Our vision for the Rooted Legacy podcast is that we give as much free content to God's creation as possible. However, if you've been affected by God's Word and would like to give, you can do so at Tithely Online or on the Tithely app. Just search Laurel Branch Church of God. Our address is Clear Fork, West Virginia 24822. That is Tithely.ly, T-I-T-H-E dot L-Y. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you and all that you do today.